We had a question and answer session, or maybe question and response is more appropriate. I don't know how well they were answered. I always have a response. Uh, so there's that. Um, and then, I think for another... Uh, I think I received about 12 questions over text following. And then I think I spoke for about two hours collectively after <laughs> services uh, with a few people uh, with more questions. So that was great. Uh, love doing that. And uh, please continue the questions and all that. But we won't have time for another actual um, session of question and answer sort of thing. Uh, if you want to turn over to Exodus chapter 5, we'll read from there in a moment. I think I said in last week's class that we were going to move into more giant conversation, and we are, um, but uh, it will be actually next week because that will help us to kind of bridge into the New Testament. Um, so we'll save that for next week. This week, I want to talk about God among the gods, the whole divine council idea, the whole uh, idea of these other nations having thing, and I, I think we don't get hung up on the the, the word gods as if we're talking about um, that there's a pantheon in heaven or something like that, that God is like Zeus, and then there's all these other ones that do it. That's not what we're dealing with. Uh, there is no one like God. They're, they're not like him. Um, they are created things. Uh, he does give them the responsibility while he's focusing in on Israel because all of the chapters before that were God working with everyone uh, to some extent and it was not, people just kept making the wrong choice. Uh, make sure you grab some outlines there. Uh, people just continue to make the wrong choice. And so he focuses on a, an individual family through whom he's going to bring about the redemption of all of this stuff, ultimately leading to Jesus uh, from Abraham. Uh, and while that's going on, he gives these things he's created the responsibility of overseeing, and what they're supposed to do is lead these various people groups in righteousness, justice, and all of that. Psalm 82 says that they did not do that. And so they're going to be punished. It is through it is through Jesus that all of these things are going to be brought back together and all of this. Uh, so I want to talk about the, quote-unquote, God's uh, Elohim of other nations that God has put there, some of the interactions between Yahweh and these other things uh, that we see in the text. Uh, the first one we'll start with is the one that I care the least about. So we'll go through it quick. Um, because there are, there are a couple places in 1 Kings, and they'll be on our paper uh, that we'll need to go through. I saved the best for last, which is dumb, because I never get to the end. So uh, you got to be careful. Um, our intro here, I think there's a good uh, kind of layout of the historical mindset about how the gods worked. Um, in a recent Marvel movie, if you haven't seen it, then you just don't care about the Marvel movie, so it's fine. Because uh, <laughs> otherwise you would have seen it pretty quick. Uh, Thor, uh, Love and Thunder, the opening scene introduces us to the eventual antagonist, played by Christian Bale, Gore the God Butcher. He didn't start out this way. At first, he was a faithful worshiper of his God. After the death of his daughter and the death of his people, 
Gore stumbles upon this god sitting in a desert oasis, enjoying the fruits of his creation. When Gore asks where the god has been and all of his crying out, the god replies, letting him know that he doesn't care for him, his daughter, his people, and their suffering. He just make more people to worship him. It was not a big deal. Uh, more people will come along, worship him. People are ultimately insignificant to beings such as the gods. Later, there is a city where all the gods from all of these other mythologies and other things are present. Uh, and Thor is trying to warn them of, you know, this guy called God Butcher, who's trying to kill all of the gods as an act of vengeance. Uh, and they say, he can't reach us here. We don't care. We don't care about what he's doing. We're just going to enjoy ourselves here. Uh, and that's very much going, uh, that, that's very much, if we, uh, we'll look at Exodus here in a moment, uh, the mindset of how the gods worked uh, for most people. They do not care about us. Uh, we are just, we, we just exist. They're so much greater than we are. Uh, maybe if we sacrifice enough, plead enough, they might have some amount of pity for us and then turn and you know, throw us a bone every now and again or something like that. Uh, there are even uh, various stories in, some of, uh, in various mythologies of uh, one of the gods, uh, some of the gods reaching down and helping and doing too much, and so the other gods punishing those gods for helping people too much. Because we don't matter. We're, we're not significant. And that's the thought process. The Egyptians, their gods don't really care about them. Uh, the Greeks, their gods don't really care about them. Uh, and then along comes this God in Israel who says, I care about you. I have made these promises with you. Uh, you will not fulfill your end of the deal. And there will come consequences with that. But it's not arbitrary. It's not, I'm just upset with you. And so I'm going to mess with you because I made you so I can do whatever I want with you. It's, I want to have a relationship with you, which is completely uh, opposite of how all of the other people groups would have thought about uh, their gods for the most part. Okay, so now we, we have that background uh, and understanding. Let's actually look at some of these uh, gods' beliefs uh, throughout the text here. We'll start in Exodus chapter 5. Uh, throughout the Exodus, there are supernatural events everywhere. When we leave Egypt, the River Jordan's parted on both sides, allowing for Israel's safe passage on dry land. Uh, during our stay in Egypt... Plagues will be delivered by God to Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. Before all of this begins, we're already given discussion and action between God and the gods. Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Uh, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. <coughs> Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Uh, and then the response from Pharaoh is, I do not care. Uh, you, you stay here, you work, I'm not letting you go. Uh, so there's an opportunity before any of the plagues hit to let, let my people go. And Pharaoh decides he's not going to do that. But he specifically says, who is the Lord, or who is Yahweh? That's the name being used. Uh, who is Yahweh? I don't know him. I do not care. You know, he's not one of my gods. He's not one that I worship. I'm unfamiliar with him. I'm not worried about him. Uh, and notice Moses first said, Moses and Aaron first say, 
we need to go hold a feast in the wilderness. Sure. I mean, that's something that they're going to do quite a bit of uh, here pretty soon. Uh, but then when he says no, verse 3, the God of the Hebrews met with us. And if we don't go, we're going to have all these plagues and pestilence and all of this befall us. don't think that's accurate. Um, I don't think that's accurate at all. There's a discussion that God has with Moses about go and tell Pharaoh this so that he'll let you go and all of this sort of stuff. Uh, it's not that God is actually going to do this. So why would Moses say something like that? Why would Moses say, if we don't go, we're going to be punished with plagues and pestilence and all of this? General idea. That's how they work. That's how gods work. Pharaoh hopefully would understand like, oh man, I've been there, guys. <laughs> I'll let you go because that's pretty rough. Because that's how, especially Pharaoh, uh, that's how they would have worked. You have a thought? Going, go ahead. going into verse number four, it, it, yeah. it takes away, when, when Moses said that, it, it said to Pharaoh that they were, you are going to take away your workforce. Yeah. With all the, all the sickness. You know. uh, right, yeah. You would, you would think that uh, Pharaoh might, <laughs> this would be a nice appeal to, oh, I don't want them all to die because then I lose all the people working. Uh, but he is not convinced that this God really has any power because he's, he's not concerned about them dying. Um, but Moses is trying to reach out with the same mindset that, the, that Pharaoh and the Egyptians would have had of, if we don't go do this, uh, then we're going to be punished in this way. Uh, you can also think about, and we talked about this a few Sunday nights ago, uh, Genesis... When is it? Genesis 12. <laughs> Genesis 12, uh, when Abram is off going along, uh, and they come to Egypt and you know say that you're my sister and all this stuff, and so Pharaoh takes <laughs> takes his wife uh, because Abram makes a bad choice here. Uh, Abram and Sarai, but Abram's taking the lead on this. They make a bad choice, and what happens to Pharaoh for him to realize something bad has occurred here? plagues and pestilence. And that gives him the indication of, hold on, I've made some God mad. Uh, and that's how all that situation gets sorted. God communicates with Pharaoh in the way that he would have been used to communicated by the gods of, oh, plagues mean I have enraged some God and so I need to turn the ship around. Which makes the whole ten plague situation, I mean, this, this guy's very persistent of uh, not letting them go. Okay, uh, turn over to top of page two there. We're moving. That's good. Fantastic. Uh, the Egyptians are polytheists. That is, they have beliefs in many gods, would worship many gods, would uh, segment those gods into different roles. Those roles would overlap to some degree. Um, but those, your gods would be distinctive for the most part of this god is for the sun, this one's for the moon, this one's for uh, rain, this one is for... You know, darkness and light, and they kind of segment those, and then the greater ones are kind of a combo of some of the lesser ones, to put it simply. Uh, so if the rain suddenly stops, top of page two there, the rain and sun gods must be feuding with each other, and the sun god is succeeding. That's how they would explain these sorts of things. So, well, why isn't rain happening? Well, because the god that controls the other stuff, you know, constant sun, uh, is fighting with the rain god, and he must be stronger right now, or he's just generally stronger. That's their whole thought process. Uh, all these gods uh, fight and war and battle against each other. It's always chaos up there. 
And then in Genesis and Exodus and throughout the Old Testament, uh, it's not chaos up there. God is continually described as order and bringing peace and all of those things. The other gods, it's, well, I ascended because I killed this one. It's just constant warring and fighting and battling, uh, and that's what they see in their people as well. Okay, Uh, maybe you could sacrifice enough, cry out loud enough to stop the fighting, but you likely just have to wait it out because the gods don't care about you. Uh, One scholar put it this way, uh, and I'm a loose summary of his quote. The gods of the ancient world are basically humans with superpowers. So emotional, uh, selfish, I'm going to get whatever I want, that sort of thing. That's basically what they were. That's how they're described. Just go go read about some of those (laughs) beings and what was attributed to them. That's how they were. And so Moses' language here in verse 3 Uh, reflects the relationship other societies had with their gods, specifically the Egyptians, but this would be uh, applicable to uh, so many others. If we don't worship, our God will be angry and destroy us. I mean, that's that's the idea. Uh, Even still, Pharaoh cares nothing for Yahweh, because he's not an Egyptian god. He inflicts further punishment if we go into verses 6 through 9. Now you're going to go get your own straw. I'm going to make the work harder for you. Um, God was already upset with the injustice happening to these people, and Pharaoh cranks it up a notch. So things are going to be bad for Pharaoh. Uh, We know this, um, but that's why that happens. Uh, Yahweh is now going to prove to Pharaoh that he is, in fact, God of Egypt, too. Uh, Pharaoh does not know who this God is. He's about to, uh, in a big way. Uh, As a result of this indirect connection to the gods, Pharaoh may have been more interested Uh, In the, this is an interesting thought uh, that may or may not matter, but still interesting. Uh, The precision of Yahweh more than his power. Uh, He was used to power every time that there would be thunderstorms or some fire, something like that. He would go, well, that's the power of the gods. You know, they're mighty, they're strong, all this stuff. He'd be used to power. Power would not be a new concept for him. Gods have power. That's how they work. Uh, but precision, especially since they're all fighting each other and all of this stuff, it's like, well, maybe rain happens if I sacrifice, and even then I'm not entirely sure that it will happen or when it will happen or any of those things. Uh, and so Pharaoh might have more of a concern about precision. We'll come to a spot in the text uh, that maybe points to that idea. Uh, either way, Uh, Pharaoh is going to need to be taught some things in order for him to kind of open his mind uh, to the possibility here. Okay, one of the first interactions between God, this is Exodus 7, if you want to turn there, uh, between God and the gods of Egypt takes place before the plagues. Okay, so here we've had a conversation in Exodus uh, 5 of if we don't go and worship, our God will destroy us. That's the language that the Egyptians would be used to. Uh, and before we even get to the plagues, we have uh, Moses and, uh, and Aaron before Pharaoh. We'll start in verse 9 of chapter 7. When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a ser- uh, serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. Uh, For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. We won't talk about the heart-hardening thing. That's a whole other deal. Uh, But uh, I want you to notice what verse 
the end of verse 11 says, uh, The magicians of Egypt also did the same by their secret arts. Moses does not write, well, it appeared that they did that, or, man, it sure looked to us, but there's no way that it was possibly that because, uh, you know, they couldn't do things like that. That's not the indication we're given in the text. Uh, if we want to say uh, it looked like their staffs become serpents, uh, but Moses and Aaron's actually did, uh, it's not being consistent with what's being presented to us, number one. Uh, number two, I, I suppose it would be impressive for Moses and Aaron's serpent to swallow a bunch of wooden staffs, but it kind of robs this whole interaction of the power element. Okay? It, we, this happened uh, throughout history where, where this whole belief, and we brought it up a few weeks ago, uh, where a lot of the early church wrote about these sorts of things, the good spiritual stuff and the bad spiritual stuff. Uh, somewhere along the way, uh, when we became more knowledgeable in all of this, uh, we got rid of a lot of the spiritual stuff. But then you end up with a problem because heaven's a spiritual thing uh, and you don't want to lose heaven, so we got to keep heaven. Uh, but hell sure has talked an awful lot about, so we got to keep that part. So there's a bad spiritual place, so we got to have that. But these things like demons and maybe even bad angel, all, the, all those sorts of ideas, eh, you know, we can kind of toss that. And so for a long time it's been, we have God, uh, we have, you know, God in heaven, we have heaven, we have the angels in heaven, we have the Holy Spirit, those are all spiritual things, and they're good, and so we would have discussions about those, though if we're being honest, Holy Spirit even gets kind of kicked to the curb quite a bit, uh, and not discussed. So there are a lot of good spiritual things that we will talk about, and some that are kind of on the fringes, and then the bad kind of got left behind, except for hell, because you have to have hell. Uh, and then I guess also that devil guy. You know, we have to have some bad thing. Uh, but that's not how they thought. That's not how Christians thought uh, for a long, long time. Uh, there's a reason that change in thinking came about. Uh, we probably won't ever talk about that because we just don't have time outside of what I'm doing right now. Um, but there was a time where that changed, but that's not how it was. Uh, they would look at these sorts of events and not try to naturalize it or explain it away and say, uh, there's no way that they could do this power thing uh, because God was not on their side. Uh, you could maybe argue God was allowing them to do that because the whole point of this section here is, hey, Pharaoh, who's stronger? <laughs> Your gods or the one that we're holding up? And it's literally multiple uh, magicians here and their serpents versus the one and the one wins. Okay, that's supposed to be an indicator for Pharaoh of my God's bigger than you. My God could beat up your gods. Because he, he can and he's going to. Uh, but it's not good enough for Pharaoh. So here come the plagues. All right. Um, on the bottom, or the mid, midway through page two and then onward, we'll go through these quickly. And by quickly, maybe not at all. <laughs> Just let you read those. Um, this goes through the ten plagues as they are listed out. And we'll note a couple here on the, on the next page here in just a moment. But these go through the ten plagues. I think it is entirely reasonable 
uh, to look at these and go, why these particular plagues? Why, why do these certain types of things? Uh, and then there are a couple really weird things that occur here uh, through all of this. Uh, but why would God do this? Is God just really creative of, ooh, I could punish him this. What if frogs everywhere? What if I did that? Um, there have been attempts, like there are with all supernatural parts of the Bible, to remove the super part and try to find some natural way to make it occur. Um, don't do that with the Bible. If you're going to do that with the Bible, then you come to the resurrection and go, well, I believe in that supernatural part. That doesn't work that way. Uh, you have to accept this as it is presented to us. Uh, I'm not accusing anybody here of doing that, um, but we're very comfortable with supernatural when it's things like resurrection and all of this, because we have to be, because without the resurrection, there's no hope, uh, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. So we're very comfortable with some of those things, but then with others of these, it's like, well, was it really dry ground, or was it... Yeah, did, it was this time of year, and so the water was just really low, and so it was like that. That's not what it says. There's no reason to do that. Uh, let's just accept, let's just read it as it is, and understand what their belief about all that was, and their belief was very supernatural. Uh, and so when you read through the plagues and all of this, uh, which is another one of those, I was just talking to the Thursday morning class about uh Daniel in the lion's den said that's one of our VBS places. You know, I, I went to multiple Daniel in the lion's den and his friends in the fiery furnace VBSs. We should talk to kids about those. Those are terrifying stories. <laughs> this is another one of those. Like, you know, it'd be great for VBS 10 plagues. How cool would that be? Uh, it is kind of cool, <laughs> but it's a terrifying thing that's going on here. Uh, and so I wonder if we don't kind of carry the children's versions of these things with us and miss, miss a lot of the, the depth of what's going on here. At any rate, goes through these ten plagues, uh, and I, I have where those things occur, but also that they had gods uh, that would be responsible for handling certain things in their mind, uh, that this is how this god works. And so when these plagues kept coming along... Uh, you can imagine that they're worshiping, crying out to these particular gods, and those things are powerless. <laughs> the frogs keep coming. The locusts keep coming. Uh, all, all of this blood is still in the water. You know, what are we going to do? Uh, because their gods aren't capable of uh, overtaking. They can have all the serpents they want. They're going to lose to the one. They're going to lose to this one. Uh, and even still, uh, Pharaoh denies, denies, denies. Okay, uh, page three. We're making good time. Uh, there are some other resources there for you to uh, you to check out. Okay, uh, the line that says it is possible. It's possible in all these plagues that God is directly taking shots at the gods of Egypt, these people that they would have reached out to, or these beings that they would have cried out to to say, deliver us from this, and they can't. They, they don't have the power to do so. Yahweh is greater than them. Uh, and so that it wouldn't be working. And that's, a, that's the point. That's the point of all of these things occurring. That Pharaoh needs to understand who he's dealing with. Because this whole thing begins with, I do not know who Yahweh is. I do not care who Yahweh is. I do not care what he wants. I'm not letting you go. That's where this starts. Uh, and so Yahweh is saying, here I am. Uh, this is who I am. Uh, and you need to let my people go. Uh, whether it's intentional or not, uh, it is reasonable to think that Pharaoh would have interpreted these events as such. 
you can also think about in 1 Kings 18, and we won't go there, but 1 Kings 18, when there's a drought, uh, Baal is supposed to be a god that can bring rain. And yet we have a drought for <laughs> three and a half years. Uh, he's not very effective at his job. Uh, and then you just think about Elijah taunting the cult there, the, the worshipers of Baal. Uh, and again, he stands on his own while there are many serpents across from him and the one wins. And that's the point. That's the idea uh, that is supposed to keep coming across. Okay, a couple of these events are really interesting for us today. Midway there, page three. With the plague of frogs. Okay, remember we said precision over power. Pharaoh's used to power, at least attributing power to these things. Uh, Pharaoh, when he's asked when to get rid of the frogs, says tomorrow. He doesn't say now, you know, now would be good. Uh, please get rid of the frogs. He says tomorrow. Uh, and then Moses responds with, according to your word, in order that you may acknowledge that there's no one like Yahweh our God. All right, tomorrow the frogs will be gone. Uh, that's a big deal because all of these different plagues occurring, uh, this would be the second one, uh, but you have uh, water to blood and then frogs. These are different sorts of things, okay? Animals, we're dealing with water. Those would be different gods in all of this. So for the gods to work together and make this you know, new thing happen or stop like this or whatever, that's not how the, his gods work. Uh, and so to say, I want it to be done tomorrow. And then Moses responds with, so that you understand who Yahweh is, this will happen exactly as you've asked. That would be a big deal for Pharaoh. Uh, not a big enough deal, apparently, because <laughs> uh, he keeps going on. We get eight more plagues. Uh, but this idea of precision uh, is present in Pharaoh's mind uh, about how this God might work. Uh, also, the seventh plague... Uh, of hail speaks of fire as well. The Hebrew is actually fire contained within the ice. That's the way that the Hebrew is written. So when you think of hail, it's not ice and fire together. It's like an ice ball with fire inside. That's not how that works, right? The, that would melt the other thing. That's the Hebrew phrase. That's the sentence. Uh, it's not really translated that way, I don't believe, um, for us. Let's see if the ESV does a good job with this. Uh, Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent down thunder and hail and fire. Uh, ran, ran down to the earth. The Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. So that in the midst of the hail is the, the phrasing of it is not both of these things are happening at once. That would still be impressive uh, to Pharaoh. Uh, and uh, it's still impressive. Uh that would still be an impressive sight, but the sentence contains the idea of fire inside the ice. Why is that significant to Pharaoh's mind? Or should it be anyway? Because it's not good enough. <laughs> Why should that be impressive enough for him? should be impressive because those would be two completely opposite gods coming together to work together for a common purpose, and that's not how they work. Uh, and so for Pharaoh to see two opposite elements coming together as one would be another indicator of you don't know who you're dealing with. Uh, it's, it's not he can do this, but he can't do this. It's he can do whatever he wants. Uh, so you need to let his people go, and he won't. Uh, throughout these offense, uh, events, Pharaoh comes to affirm Yahweh. There are a few moments where he acknowledges who God is, his power, his precision. The wizards in Pharaoh's court also falter repeatedly throughout the narrative. 
Uh, he sees the direct working of Yahweh among the people of Israel. Even still, he resolves to fight against Yahweh to the bitter end. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar, who was a part of our question and uh, answer session last week. Here's the summary. The plagues show God's strength in nations that supposedly do not belong to him. Okay, Egypt is not his area. That's not true. All the creation belongs to him. Uh, and Pharaoh learns that. God is God of all the nations, is capable of exercising power uh, over them without fight from the divine beings opposed to him. Okay, bottom of page three. God's in Canaan. My reporter says about 30 minutes. 45, is that when we're out? I ask it every week. Is that still true? Great. Uh, <laughs> 45, we got 15 minutes. Uh, throughout the kings, we see various interactions of God in the turf of other gods. From an ancient standpoint, God was outside of his jurisdiction. That's how they would think about this. We are a seafaring people because we worship the God of the sea. So that's where we should belong. If we want to fight a battle, we're going to go fight it at sea because we worship the God of the sea. That's the mindset. We do not want to fight a battle in the mountains because we don't worship the God of the mountains. So we want to stay away from the mountains, uh, especially if we're fighting the people that live in the mountains because they worship the God of the mountains. And so we'll lose that big time. You know, there's no water. That's, that's the thought process. That's how they think. We have to bring that into the text with us because that's their mindset. Uh, so God's outside of his jurisdiction. We're not in Israel anymore. You know, you don't have any power here with your God. That would be the thought process. But the Bible's clear about God being God over all the earth. Let's talk about this whole... That, that whole idea of we worship the sea god and so we're going to live there or there's a mountain god. or there's, That's called localized gods. He's located in one space or a certain area, geography, whatever, depending on who the god is. That idea of localized gods is, is in scripture in a couple places. We got a weird one here. 1 Kings 5, 15 through 19. It's on your paper at the top of page 4. Uh, our first account concerns Naaman and his healing of leprosy. After his healing by dipping in the Jordan River seven times, we get this interaction between Naaman and Elisha. He returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So now, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, this is a whole separate thing too, it's great. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon, that's a God that they would worship, uh, to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. Okay, so a couple of things happening here. The second half of this is the guy that I serve is going to continue to worship this God. I have to go in there with him because he can't bow over in worship. I have to help him. That's part of my responsibility. Uh, but I'm not worshiping this God. I, I did before, not now, because now I know who Yahweh is. Uh, so please, can you, can you tell the Lord for me that I'm not worshiping this other God. And he's told, you know, you're fine. Okay, now we might look at that and go, but he's walking into a temple of a false God and all this. Yes, the expectations, as we talked about last week, for the Gentile people were to orient themselves to Yahweh and understand who he is. Let's start going that way. Go ahead. 
you put first Kings, but it's second Kings. All right, second Kings five. I'm glad it's on your paper, uh, but that's second Kings. If you want to correct that, that's probably also true of the other one. I don't know. We'll get there. Uh, sorry, second Kings five uh, fifteen through nineteen. Uh, there on your paper, but that's the section. Hey, yes. Why did he need earth? Okay, that's 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 where we're going to next. So uh, let me be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, and he specifies why he's asking for this. From now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. Uh, the best way I can like, there's a modern example of this. It's the paragraph that follows. What's with the dirt? <laughs> Uh, there was a lady uh, uh, this past year when the University of Tennessee beat Alabama in football, which is a big deal, uh, especially for Tennessee. Uh, she, <laughs> there's an image of, course, of all the fans storming the field at Alabama and all of this. And you can see her. And then you, there's a post on eBay about this, too. So it was side by side. You can see this lady that's like carving up squares of turf from Alabama's football field and then she has there are just things on eBay one after the other of you could buy some of the field where Tennessee took Alabama down and that's kind of like this uh, where it's hey you could own a piece of the place where it happened that sort of thing and so Naaman here is asking for all of this dirt from the place where he was just healed of leprosy. His gods couldn't do it or didn't care or whatever. But this god does. And he has acknowledged now who Yahweh is, because he didn't want to do this initially. But now he knows, okay, this god is clearly very powerful. I need some of the earth from here. Because he's at work in this place. But I don't know if he'll be there when I go home. Because that's how they thought about the gods. They, they have their places uh, and that's if I'm not here, then I'm going to be away from that God. But if I take this dirt with me, what probably occurred is he goes into his home and he finds a spot in the corner and he lays all the dirt out and he goes, this is where I'm going to worship now on the land of the land that belongs to, to Yahweh here. He has power over. So if I take this dirt, then I have a spot in my house where he has control and power and all of this stuff. Uh, so I don't know if he's having like bad dreams. And like if I go sleep on the dirt, that God's going to take, I don't know. Uh, but that's, that's why. It's for the purpose of worship because God, Yahweh, controls that land. That's the thought process. Weird account, uh, but it's there. And the whole Naaman uh, account is just a great section but you have this weird interaction of, why does he want dirt? <laughs> and why why the whole worship thing and all this? That's why. Uh, he wants to bring uh, he wants to bring Yahweh with him, Yahweh's land with him. Uh, during Samuel's judging, this is 1 Samuel 5. We won't read through it uh, for sake of time. I need to get to this last part. But um, great section. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant is brought out to war. If we bring the Ark, because God controls this, we can take God with us into the battle. Even Israel buys into the whole localized idea. Uh, when they get sent off into exile, there's a lot of concern over, we're not with our God anymore. Because okay? we lost, so our God lost to these other nations' gods. Uh, which, if you read through Daniel, that's the idea that's there. Our gods beat your gods, so our gods are stronger than yours. Uh, and then Nebuchadnezzar finds out that that's not the case. Uh, and so does <laughs> the next guy in charge uh, in a bigger way. Uh, but Israel, 
falls prey to this idea and says, if we take the ark before us, we'll win the battle. They've never needed to do that. Just go, the Lord is with you wherever you go, is what they're told in Joshua and Deuteronomy. But now they're, well, if we take the ark, surely we'll win. They get routed. And the ark gets taken. And it goes to these Philistine cities. And in the Philistine city, the statue of their God, where they go put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, Dagon, um, they come in the next morning and the statue is down. And there's no, they have no explanation for it. But they just go, oh, you know, let me get you here, Dagon, and set you right back up. And set it back up. And the next day, it's gone, but its head and hands are cut off. But it says as if no human hand had done this. Okay, so the text ends, and you should read that section. The, the text ends with, and so the uh, priests of the house of Dagon do not walk in that area to this day. It's like they come in, and some god, because they, they start passing the ark around to Philistine cities, and then there's plagues and pe- everywhere it goes, and then they just return it to Israel. You guys can have this back. Uh, but they, that area where Dagon fell, their acknowledgement was something stronger than him has been at work here. So they would go into that space and go, all right, and we'll just walk around the area because we don't want to touch this God's turf. For some reason, he was at work here, probably the ark, send the ark around and just bad things keep happening. So they get rid of it because that's their mindset. That's how this works. Great passage. It's really funny to think about the priests of Dagon get it, but they don't quite get it. Um, Okay. Psalm 82 has this language of uh, God uh, is taking his place uh, among the gods, having this discussion with them. They have failed to do what they've been told to do, and so he's going to punish them. Uh, Bottom of page four. Everything that we've seen so far, God at work in nations supposedly, well, you know, controlled by other gods, but God being above those things. Uh, going against God's opposed to him in Egypt. Uh, what about these spiritual beings that are actually with him? Like on his side, uh, carrying things out. Okay, bottom of page four. This is either first or second Kings uh, 22, <laughs> 13 through 23. Here's what it says. We'll just let Micaiah. I love this section too. All these sections are funny uh, to me. Uh, you have Ahab wondering about his success in battle and calls the prophets, and the prophets say, go up and fight, you're going to win. And then he says, well, what about that one guy that I hate, because he always says bad things about me, Micaiah. And (laughs) so they call Micaiah, and Micaiah says, go for it, you're going to win. He says, no, seriously, what's the the prophecy? He says, well, let me tell you. And that's what this section is. And after this, the king says, I told you he only says bad things about me. I hate this guy. Just love that slogan <laughs> section. Prophet telling it like it is, uh, not going with the crowd. The messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, uh, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, uh, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw Israel, here's the truth, I saw Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. 
The Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, Hey, listen to this. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. So the king, and if we're reading the account and don't have this, just remove that section. Then then we're going through this account and looking at it and going, you have all these prophets that are false prophets. They are lying uh, and just trying to stay in a favorable position with the king. Very human thing to do. Uh, very, you know, I want to save my own skin here and not get on the king's bad side. Micaiah does not care about any of this. Um, when you add this section in, you realize, okay, this physical thing that we're seeing and this very human thing to do of, I want to save my own skin, or maybe I want to, <laughs> uh, I want more money, the greed, all of this. You should absolutely think about Judas with the money and Satan finding an opportunity. That's the idea. So this physical, and we see all of that, but there's something at work behind all of those bad decisions. And so here you have all these prophets that are lying, and Micaiah says, here's why that took place. That I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, on his right and left, the host of heaven. Uh, and he's called the Lord of hosts. That's one of his titles. The whole idea of that is you know, army, a ton of things. <laughs> he's got it all up there. Uh, God has control over all these created things, but they're not all bad. There's a war going on because there are good things uh, on his side as well. Sitting on his right and his left. So think about God sitting. He, this would be God's divine counsel. He's sitting. Just think about him sitting on his throne, giant boardroom table, <laughs> chairs all the way down on both sides, and they have a discussion. Hey, what are we going to do here? The Lord asks a question to these things. Says, uh, all right, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall? Because Ahab's decisions have been bad. He's leading the people in the wrong direction. Con time for consequences. Who's going to carry this out for me? Does God need people to, or things to do that? <coughs> I, I kind of already gave it away. Does God need people to carry out his will for his kingdom here on the earth? Too? No. It's a parallel idea. God desires to have his creation be in harmony with him. And that includes stuff like this. That includes what's going on there, not just here. God wants it here. God wants it there. Uh, and so you have, the text just fast forwards, uh, you have one, it says one said one thing and another said another thing. It's almost like, all right, um, Lord, here is how I think we could do this. And you have God saying, that's not, that's not going to work. Uh, <laughs> it's another idea. Okay, well, what if we, no, that's not going to work either. And then you have one, it says, a spirit comes up and says, I'll entice him. Or it says, great, how are you going to do that? What's the plan? 
Uh, I'm going to be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. He's going to believe that he's going to be successful uh, and go and win, and you will lose. Uh, that, that will entice him to go up if he thinks he's going to be successful. And the Lord says, yeah, that'll do it. That'll work. Because God knows what is and is not going to work in this situation, but he wants, he desires to have unity in effort about what he's doing with his creation. That includes those created things, too, as well as us. We'll talk about that in the sermon here in just a little bit. Uh, but that's, that's what Micaiah lays out for us, of God sitting in his divine council, having discussion with these things that are on his side, uh, and encouraging them to uh, go and give out his punishment. They're not deciding their own, I think it's time we punish so-and-so. It's God saying, it's time. How are we going to carry this out? Yes, that will work. Those things won't. That will. You go do that and we'll be successful here. Uh, it's not just bad things that are up there. There's also good things that are up there working with God on his behalf. Just like there are good and bad things working with and against God here uh, in this place. Great passage. Uh, read more on that section. Uh, and if you're inclined to look at, you know, if you are skeptical skeptical about Psalm 82, uh, there's also a passage in Daniel, with Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4. You should read that about who tells Nebuchadnezzar uh, what's going to happen to him and whether it's a singular or plural amount of things uh, involved in all of that. There are passages that give us these glimpses into what God is doing with his spiritual things in the world here. And we can write them off, but then what do we do with this? Did Micaiah actually see this or not? Is he making it up? Or is this real? And if this is real, what does all that mean? Uh, I said we'd talk about giants. We're talking about giants next week. Uh, that's your take-home question. What are some of the different names of the Nephilim? There are a lot, uh, and we'll cover that. Uh, different names, and where do we find them? Uh, where we find them is very important. So go through that fun study, and uh, we'll pick up there next week. Uh, let's pray together real quick here, and we'll, we'll go. Father, we thank you for this time that we have to be together for this study uh, on the Unseen Realm. We thank you for... Uh, the texts that we have that give us uh, more and more of a, uh, a glimpse of those workings there uh, in the spiritual world. We pray that as we continue our study, we, uh, it is made clear to us uh, through the study of your word, uh, our place and role in all of those things. Uh, we thank you for your word that we can come to it and study and pray that we don't take that, uh, that privilege for granted, but instead uh, use our time uh, and efforts uh, to your word to know you better uh, and to know our responsibilities better. And we thank you for the time of worship we're about to engage in. I pray that we bring to you the things that are on our hearts and minds, lay them before you, uh, knowing that uh, there is no one like you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.